0: Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. Today we've got the latest episode in our series on Britain's Greatest Prime Ministers.
2: Hello, and welcome to our new series profiling some of Britain's most important prime ministers. I'm Matt Elton, Deputy Editor of BBC History magazine. It's 300 years since Robert Walpole became Britain's first prime minister. To mark this seismic moment in the nation's political history, we asked a series of leading historians to each nominate the two leaders that they believe achieved most during their time in Number 10. This week, we'll be hearing from historian Jeremy Black, whose nomination, Winston Churchill, was crucial in keeping the nation motivated at a time of national peril. So we're here to talk about uh, Winston Churchill, and I've kicked off some of the other interviews in this series by asking questions like, for, for people who don't know, when was their tenure or what made him great? But someone like Churchill, I think the problem is more, do you think that we can really get a clear view of who Churchill really was, given the icon he's become?
3: Well, I think that's a brilliant question. And can I just say, not just the icon he's become, the icon he continues to become. Because, for example, for a new generation of television viewers, The Crown presented a view of Churchill in Churchill's peace years you know, because he was prime minister again from 1951 to 1955, having been prime minister from 1940 to 1945, which again creates an image. Um, So we have with Churchill uh, the kind of situation which you don't generally have um, with a major prime minister which is that there are many layers in which film and television both those explicitly speak seeking to be accurate and those that have been more willing to as it were, uh, have a degree of artistic license. Those have been listened to by the the audiences. So, for for scholars to argue uh, points um, is somewhat difficult. And obviously, the 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 point to make, and this is not one critical of Churchill. It's not one. It's an obvious one. Is that Churchill didn't know what was coming. You have to think about Churchill moving forward through his life and political career, rather than doing as we're doing, including myself, which is being retrospective. So if we want to judge Churchill, uh, I, I think, first of all, the important thing that's interesting about him is he did take a while to decide which political home he had. He changed political parties um and indeed uh, if you think about it he's relatively unusual in british history in having very major roles in two different political parties and i don't think that has received enough attention because What it did mean uh, is, first, I think he was better placed than maybe some other people to run a coalition government, and the wartime government was a coalition government. And also, I think he always was slightly, he was both, became a loyal conservative, but he was always somewhat outside the conservative tribe as well, because he had been a liberal cabinet minister and for several important posts. We can take this a stage further in looking at Churchill in that the late 19th and early 20th century in British politics was a disruptive period because the issue of Irish home rule, as pushed by William Gladstone, split the Liberal Party creates a third party, a third grouping, we can call them the liberal unionists, um, who in a way were more important for a while than the other new party that was coming along, which was the Labour Party. And what that did was make it quite difficult for people to understand that there would be any lasting identity in political groupings. Nobody knew whether the Liberal Unionists would eventually be absorbed back in the Liberal Party or whether they would join the Conservatives or whether they'd be a third force. A man like Churchill, who in the 1900s is fundamentally both looking for domestic reform, which he sees as a crucial way to strengthen the country, but is also a proud defender of Britain as a major player in the world, the leading naval power, um, the leading empire, is a man who finds the liberal party of the late 1900s quite conducive. It's building battleships um, in the naval race with Germany, and it's pushing through social reform. So that is conducive, but that liberal party Collapses really because of the divisions between Lloyd George and Herbert Asquith, uh, other factors as well. And partly to do with that, the anti Labour, as it were, inclination vote consolidates around the Conservatives. So that becomes part of where Churchill goes. And Churchill goes, he's not alone in going there, but Churchill moves, becomes a Conservative, but doesn't find that as easy as he would like to find it. And I think that that is a problem. Now, there's a famous book by Robert Rhodes James called Churchill, A Study in Failure, which looks at his period before World War II. I mean, I have to say, somebody who'd already by that period been Home Secretary, First Lord of the Admiralty, Secretary of State for War, Chancellor of the Exchequer, I'm not sure I would necessarily call that a study in failure. But what Rhodes James, I suppose, and it's was rather silly phrase, But what I suppose he was capturing was this sense that in the 1930s, the causes Churchill had endorsed, uh, his opposition to the Government of India Act of 1935, um, his willingness to support Edward VIII in the abdication crisis in 1936, and his strong warnings about German uh, intentions, those didn't seem to be doing terribly well. And The first two had been total failures. The third one appeared to be a total failure at the time of the Munich Settlement Agreement in late 1938. And then, as with so often in politics, you have the astonishing transformation. Here, the astonishing transformation is the way that Chamberlain's system, which politically was not a bad system, Uh, domestically he was doing quite well. The uh, national government that he was head of would almost certainly have won the next general election, which was due for 1940. Chamberlain's system, and he appears in 1938 to be the great peacemaker at Munich, Chamberlain's system is wrecked by Adolf Hitler And Chamberlain himself does not make a good transition to being a war prime minister. And I think um, being a war prime minister is a particularly difficult task. It's an even harder task when it goes badly wrong. So what one has there is Chamberlain fails the challenge. That's not intended to impugn what he was doing in his domestic policies in the 1930s or earlier as a minister. He'd been, you know, a minister of housing, for example. It's not intended to impugn those, but it goes wrong, badly wrong. And there is obviously a political crisis. And that political crisis is not just a matter of who is going to be the minister, the first minister, prime minister, as when uh, Lloyd George replaced Asquith in um, 1916. It's not just that, because it's as if in 1916 the entire British system on the continent had collapsed and German forces were poised, uh, or soon would be poised, to invade the country. Now that fortunately wasn't the situation in 1916, which gives Lloyd George an opportunity to bed himself in, as it were, Churchill had a far harder situation because clearly there were enormous problems posed by German success. And we know in hindsight what is to happen out of World War II. But when Churchill becomes, becomes Prime Minister, of course, Uh, France is on its way out. Italy is about to come into the war on Germany's side. Japan is an ally of Germany. The Soviet Union is an ally of Germany. And the United States is resolutely neutral. And given that situation, um, the task facing Churchill was uniquely difficult. And I think um, his great claim to fame, justified claim to fame, uh, was his resolute stance in 1940 and 41. Uh, The situation, of course, changes in 1941 because Britain becomes part of a significant alliance, first with the Soviet Union, and Churchill shows considerable flexibility in being willing to, um, to see the potential there. And uh, and secondly, with the United States. Now, the initial stages when we're allied to the Soviet Union and the United States are still very difficult. Germany and Japan make significant gains. We are under enormous pressure, as are our allies, in late forty-one, early forty-two. So Churchill's resolution, if you like, uh, isn't something that is just uh, pers- stopped or no longer any need for it after Pearl Harbour. But by the end of forty-two, and even more by the winning of the Battle of the Atlantic in 1943, the situation is changing much more favourably. And then Churchill shows a set of political skills. I mean, I edited, uh, no, not edited, uh, gosh, I'm underwriting myself. I, uh, I produced a book called World War II in 100 Maps, which includes a discussion of the maps and mapping skill and geographical uh, focus of the major leaders and the two major leaders who were most happy with maps and had a strongest sense of geography were Churchill and Roosevelt and Churchill had a sense goes right back I think to his experience of empire from the late 19th century he has a sense of the uh, interaction of different areas he has a sense that strategy requires prioritization um, he has a sense also that there is both a determination and need to defeat Uh, Britain's opponents, but also he's willing to think about the post-war world, uh, as indeed is Stalin, Uh, whereas Roosevelt proves curiously naive in many respects when thinking about the post-war world. So Churchill's skills, uh, he has a varied skill set during the war, but they're an important skill set, and we haven't all also talked about his ability to work with Labour, which is significant because It's a new national government in uh, 1940, much broader than the national government that had been created in 1931. Uh, And Churchill does well at that. Uh, And, you know, he commands the confidence and sympathy of uh, most of the senior Labour people, uh, I mean, Cripps wants to get rid of him and replace him, but um, uh, Attlee and Churchill have a good relationship. And I think that's significant. Now, So we need to talk about that as we're doing. But obviously there's the completely separate set of questions about Churchill as the peacetime prime minister from 1951
2: to 1955. And we'll definitely get onto those. There's a whole bunch to unpack there. One of the things that really interests me is I think Churchill... Has sometimes become shorthand for this kind of stubborn resoluteness. When actually, one of the things that you're talking about is his ability to work as part of a coalition and work with a range of political. Um, beliefs and attitudes. Do you think that was one of the defining characteristics of his whole
3: career? Well, I think both of them, because first of all, it's worth bearing in mind, as you know, that in 1940, in the spring, late spring, early summer of 1940, there were senior politicians who wanted to reach a settlement with Hitler and believed it necessary. Now, do bear in mind, we know that Hitler was somebody who you couldn't trust, who was a sociopath, an extraordinarily evil man. But it's worth bearing in mind that if you look back, for example, the British government, Henry Addington in 1802 had had signed the Peace of Amiens with Napoleon, uh, which had been regarded as a national humiliation, but also as just necessary. And in the late spring of uh, 1940, among the figures that you're talking about, you're talking about butler um who was you know senior in foreign policy lloyd george who saw himself as the person that should be prime minister and who thought that Petain had done the right thing by france and he didn't like Hitler. he'd met hitler twice at birch's garden didn't like him particularly but he thought that he could do a deal with hitler so there were and of course you know the left wing of the Labour Party um because Stalin was Hitler's ally they were you know not particularly you know you've got miners who were who were refusing to to support the war effort so you've got a variety of political elements there who are unreliable let's put it like that I mean they would have argued they had a prescient sense of the national advantage and that Britain had lost and that it was necessary to accept that situation uh and to accept the deals that uh, hitler was offering which were better deal would have been a better deal than for vichy france so i think churchill's very important he saw through hitler I mean, that's real. He saw through Hitler both during the 1930s, the peace years, and during the war years. I mean, he absolutely saw through. I mean, he knew that you couldn't deal with this man, that to deal with this man would be disastrous, and that, uh, you know, it was necessary to fight so that he should be overthrown. So, so to that extent, it was great resolution. Once he becomes prime minister, though, that's not the end of his problems, because, as you correctly say, he's got to create a coalition. Now, this is not just the coalition with Labour. It's worth bearing in mind that when he becomes prime minister, he's not leader of the Conservative Party. The leader of the Conservative Party goes on being Neville Chamberlain. And it's necessary for Churchill to bring over the Conservatives, many of whom loathed his guts, um, and... Um, you can just see in this new edition of the Chips-Channon diary, very much shows that, many of whom loathed his guts. And it's worth bearing in mind that when there's the motion of no confidence in Churchill, I think I'm correct in saying there's only 25 MPs voted against him. But, you know, they, they were conservatives on the whole. So he's got to win the support of the Conservative Party and he's got to win the support of the Labour Party and, in a sense, neutralise those elements of on both the far left and the far right. There are others as well. There were, um, the IRA of course had started a new campaign in 1939 and um, there was, you know, they were willing to look to Hitler. Um, So you had to neutralize uh, uh, a group of elements but also to get the government to work. And he was good at that. He was very good at that. And he was helped. Uh, There's no, I I don't think Attlee was a brilliant peacetime prime minister, but I think he was a very good wartime number two. And I think that was a key and great achievement of his.
2: Talking about Churchill's Second World War prime ministership, are there two or three key episodes that you think show us what he was like as prime minister?
3: Well, first of all, I think his bravery. I mean, you know, getting into these planes, and remember, you're getting, you get long-range German fighters out of uh, Brittany in particular, uh, essentially hunting for Allied merchant shipping. But, you know, getting into planes, and it wasn't exactly in the first flush of youth, and flying to um, you know, off to his conferences, getting into boats and sailing like the Prince of Wales, um, uh, you know, into the in the North Atlantic, when, of course, there are German U-boats around. I mean, and, you know, you might think, oh, well, nothing ever happens to people. It's worth note, reminding yourself that in the First World War, Kitchener, who Churchill knew very well, had died when HMS Hampshire went down on a mine. I mean, you know, so, it, first of all, great bravery, and I think there's no two ways about that. Second of all, I think he is an astute judge of the problems of dealing with other states, but also how to get the best from them. And I think there's no two ways about it. Roosevelt was opposed to the British Empire. He He was very cold-heartedly and looking for his own national advantage to a far greater extent than Britain ever did. Uh, But Churchill understood that, in a way, he had to work with what was there rather than imagining a different world. And I think that also um, conditions very much his relationship with Stalin. I think that... And lastly... I mean, obviously, Churchill did have rows with his senior military figures. Alan Brooks' diary makes it very clear about this. Uh, I've got my own book on Rethinking World War II, which makes this clear. Um, But I think it's fair to say that, on the whole, when push came to shove, Churchill would accept that the military leaders uh, had to make a lot of the key decisions. So, and obviously the contrast is very clear um, if you look at Germany. I mean, the German generals have always been overrated. I'm, I'm afraid to say that there is this very sad tendency to exaggerate the skill of the Wehrmacht when, you know, the best of my knowledge, it lost World War II. But the fact of the matter is part of the, uh, of the mess was not only the failures of the German military system, but also the completely, uh, thankfully from our point of view, incompetent interventions of Hitler. Well, Churchill had some pretty silly ideas, and one of them was pretty disastrous, the campaign in the Dodecanese, in the Aegean. But on the whole, he accepted the points of his commanders, which is very important, whilst also making sure they understood there was a timetable, there was the need to achieve things, the war wasn't to go on forever, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I think he was, he was, in my view, had the skill of what really comes with strategy. Strategy is fundamentally a political skill. It's the political skill of prioritisation. Uh, you then handle the operational details over to the commanders, uh, but the strategic skill is primarily political. And obviously strategy goes wrong when the generals try and do strategy and war goes wrong, as with Hitler, when the uh, political figures try either can't do strategy and Hitler couldn't, thankfully, but also even worse, interfere in the operational side.
2: So it's that combination of listening to other people, but having a firm sense of your own leadership. Um, you've talked a little bit about the sort of international, obviously, dimension of, of the war. Um, do we get a sense of how he was viewed by other political figures elsewhere in the
3: world? Again, that's fascinating. I mean, when he addressed the joint uh, session of Congress... Um, it was quite clear that a lot of people there were not only very impressed by him, but also had a degree of affection for him. I mean, obviously, Churchill had been frequently to North America. He knew a lot of people and just as he knew um, a lot of the key dominion figures, because obviously he'd been in government for most of the period uh, up to uh, 1929, so he knew knew a lot of people. I I would say that the respect in which he is held uh, in the United States and even more in the Dominions was very important to the success of the Allied coalition. I think that's significant. George VI played a constitutional straight bat, but also came to have an enormous sympathy for his prime minister. I think, again, that's very important. And we have to be aware that Edward VIII would probably have been an absolute disaster, probably a traitor, uh, almost certainly would have urged support for a peace settlement with uh, the Third Reich. So, you know, I mean, in a way, I mean, there are both the opportunities, but there are also the particular conjunctures. I mean, it it is interesting to think about uh, about the consequences if Edward VIII had been king. And that's a perfectly reasonable counterfactual. But not least because, of course, um, some of the fascist leaders, some of the figures in the Third Reich, were quite interested in running with Edward VIII as a possible... You know, they wanted to grab hold of him. So it's an entirely legitimate question to ask what would have happened.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast...
3: What I'm really interested about people, I mean, obviously, I'm a military historian, but uh, so I'm fascinated by his understanding of strategy and his understanding of geopolitics. I'm always interested as to how far people were aware of some of the ideas that were circulating.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate?
0: Visit BetterHelp.com slash History Extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, hel pcom slash History Extra.
2: Another thing that we need to think about in terms of Churchill's relationship to the world around him is his attitude to the British Empire, which is one of those things for which he gets a lot of criticism. What's your take on that? And are there other flaws that you think we should also consider?
3: Well, I think there is, uh, first of all, I think views today are, as they've always been, Divided on political matters, and the idea that there was some homogeneity in the past or that there's homogeneity at the present is, I think, misguided. Clearly, there are people at the present day who criticise Winston Churchill. There are other people that think he's great, um, and I happen to be in the latter category. Um, But, you know, there's no point um, ignoring the fact that many of the views he enunciated are ones that critics today can focus on um, and argue that were that they were wrong i mean my own view i mean if you're looking at churchill for example at in 1919 i you know he he got it right to say that Amritsar was a terrible you know you know barbarity His mistake in 1919 was, you could argue, trying to push through what became an unsuccessful intervention in the Russian Civil War. On the other hand, you could say, given all the disasters that came from communism, he was right. The problem was the execution of it. He was a man of his time in believing that empire had a positive place in the world. He believed, like most exponents of British imperialism in the late 19th century, early 20th century, that empire would be a stage, that what were referred to as the white dominions would get their independence first and would then cooperate with, uh, with Britain, that India would follow that, though which stage that would be was a matter of contention, which of course is something that leads to anger today among those people who feel that Churchill was not sufficiently supportive and that some colonies would be much later and unfortunately there was a strong degree of racism in the attitudes of that of the period there's no two ways about it there was as people go churchill was not particularly racist um i think a lot of people find that surprising to hear but um You know, he was more happy with the company of both of of Jews than most politicians of that period. When he went to the Middle East, um, he was quite happy to get on with those Muslims that he was introduced to. Um, I don't, you know, he was much less of a... I mean, he was, remember, from a liberal background in some respects. You know, I think that's a point that people tend to forget when they're talking about him. So, yes, he was a supporter of empire. Empire today appears totally anachronistic in the case of the Western European empires. I mean, obviously, there are other empires at the moment. Indonesia is an empire if you experience it from the point of view of New Guinea, or if you're living in Kashmir, you would experience maybe India as an empire but the point is that now empire in the case of britain appears an anachronism but it's worth bearing in mind that churchill almost always was roughly in line with at least a significant portion of domestic public opinion I think it's fair to say that when he became peacetime prime minister in 1951, you know, he accepted what had happened, that uh, the Labour government of Clement Attlee had given independence to the South Asian colonies, to um, Israel, and Churchill essentially um, was looking for a, um, a different situation and scenario thereafter. He wanted Britain to go on having an imperial presence, but I think most commentators were surprised at what was to come at the end of the 50s the early and the early 60s not just in britain but with france with belgium and, with, and so on so i think the important thing is not to abstract him from his context that's that's what i would say and i i i fear that some of the criticism that's um directed at him at the present day is disproportionate, or put it like this, would have would benefit from a reading of um his correspondence in extenso and from looking at his career in extenso. It is all too easy to look at just one phrase and say, oh, this is wrong. And what one really needs to do is to look at the trend of a career. I think that's what that's what I would say. I mean, if you want to criticise him from 51 to 55, I think the criticisms you might come out with is that he still saw Britain as a great power, which in a way, was misleading, I mean, given the state of the economy, but looked at differently. I mean, Britain still did have a large empire. It still did have the second largest navy in the world. It was the third power with first the atom bomb and the hydrogen bomb. So it clearly wasn't the equal. ...of the Soviet Union or the United States, but it certainly had some consequence. Um, And in in a way, the great flaw was not Churchill, but the great flaw was Anthony Eden's with the Suez Crisis, you might argue. Um, The other thing which, of course, Churchill was famously criticised for as a peacetime prime minister was really not directing sufficient attention to the way that the Labour government had left the country with a sort of a, a industrial structure to overly powerful trade unions, which were difficult to, to sustain, and that this helps to build up the problems towards the 60s. And that may well be true, but again, I think that sort of underplays the extent to which At the time, uh, most people were quite happy to keep the temperature down and didn't want to see, as it were, a progenitor of the policies later seen with Margaret Thatcher.
2: If you could somehow ask Churchill a question, um, what would you ask him?
3: Oh, well. I mean, you know, we've not talked about lots of things. And for me, the fascination is, I mean, Churchill was a major historian. I mean, you know, he wrote quite extensively. And I would be interested in asking him about how far he found history, A, interesting, um, and you know what aspects of it he found interesting, and whether he found it ever useful, whether he actually thought of himself in that context. Now, it, to a certain extent he obviously did, but I would like to probe the extent and the consequences of that. So me give, give you an example. In the autumn of 1940, when he certainly had other things to do, Churchill wrote the preface to a book of the war speeches of William Pitt the Younger. Um, I think that's quite an interesting guide to some of his concerns so I I, that's what I would have been interested in but again I mean he was apparently a very good conversationalist a good host he's one of those people I always think with historical figures one of the things you should always uh, think question is who would you have liked to have had dinner with Now, my ultimate, I mean, I would really have liked to have had dinner with Dr Johnson. It's not just political figures. I have to say some people I would hate to have had a meal with, um, although with some of them, you know, you wouldn't have had to worry about the conversation because they would have supplied both halves of it.
2: What do you think Churchill, the historian, would have made of the way he's been remembered by history?
3: Well, I imagine Churchill the historian would have been, I mean, if you think about the major work that has come out in recent years, it's the biography by Andrew Roberts. And I think that is a sensible, well-grounded work. And I imagine that if Churchill had had read that, he would have been quite pleased. I'm not sure uh, what he would have thought of The Crown. I mean, (laughs) he doesn't come across... I mean, he was an old man by then, and obviously they focus on the stroke that he had. Um, So that, I think, would have been rather different. But I think he would have been interested Uh, by the views. I mean, to me, what I'm really interested about people, I mean, obviously, I'm a military historian, but uh, so I'm fascinated by his understanding of strategy and his understanding of geopolitics. I'm always interested as to how far people were aware of some of the ideas that were circulating. So let me give you a good example of this. Halford Mackinder, the greatest figure in British geopolitics, advances his theory of the heartland in 1904. Now, Halford Mackinder was not some fruitcake academic. Uh, Halford Mackinder went on to be a member of Parliament. He was the government's commissioner in South Russia during the during the intervention and in the Russian Civil War, which Churchill was involved in. So, Churchill would obviously have known him. What I'd be fascinated about is what he really thought of these ideas. Whether he whether he took the view that ideas, as it were, were part of the vocabulary, which, which which he clothed what to he intuitively thought was the case, or where, did he actually sit there and read something and think, God, that's good. I, yeah, I must see about actually being able to draw something from there. I'd be really interested in that.
2: Finally, are there any lessons in Churchill's time in office for us today in 2021?
3: Well, I think that character is tremendously important in leadership. Um, And part of that idea of character has to be a sense of being able to convey a kind of moral resolution. Now, that doesn't mean just in war. I mean, I think, for example, Her Majesty the Queen has that, you know, character and is able to convey it very successfully. Um, but I think that that's very, very important. And I do think that when you saw, I mean, obviously, it was a totally and utterly different struggle. But I do think that um, that it was understandable that... Um, Uh, The Margaret Thatcher Thatcher in the time of the Falklands War saw herself being tested um, in a kind of similar way. Because I think, unfortunately, we don't have very many wars. I think that's very fortunate. But I think war does test the character of somebody in leadership and responsibility. They are making choices which are going to lead to people dying before their time. And that, I think, is something that is a both a strain and a responsibility, and you need character to cover it. Sometimes, unfortunately, some Prime Ministers have gone to war too glibly without thinking about the implications, both for their own country and others, and that is the very opposite of character. That is just somebody who is a child playing with toys.
0: Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Collie. Tune in tomorrow when Barry Cunliffe will be talking about his new book, Bretons and Britons.